The Circular Ruins by Jorge Luis Borges The story we read today is by a true giant of Latin American and world literature, the Argentinian Jorge Luis Borges. Borges is one of the most glaring and shaming omissions in the list of Nobel Prize laureates. Given the scope, the humanity, the genius, the creativity, and the influence of his writing to this day. Las Ruinas Circulares, The Circular Ruins, deals with how dreams are manifested in reality. But not in the flippant style, the gurus of self-development, and the secret. Tell us. Borges's launching pad is a passage from Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll, in which the plum twin Tweedledee draws Alice's attention to the sleeping red king and claims that she is nothing but a character in the king's dream. This is a recurrent idea in Borges, which informed most of his lucid, beautiful, imaginative work, how thoughts manifest in reality. What immortality means when thoughts can manifest as real objects in the real world. And even how writers can engender other writers whose existence and originality would be simply unthinkable, impossible, without their predecessors. But I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Let's now listen to Borges. saw him disembark in the undivided night. No one saw the bamboo canoe sink into the sacred mud. But in a few days, there was no one who did not know that the taciturn man came from the south and that his home had been one of the countless villages upstream in the deeply cleft side of the mountain, where the Send language had not been contaminated by Greek and where leprosy is infrequent. What is certain is that the gray man cased the mud, climbed up the bank, pushing aside, probably without feeling, the scraggy bushes lacerating his flesh like blades, and crawled, nauseated and blood-stained, up to the circular enclosure crowned with a stone tiger or horse, which once had been the color of flame and now was that of ashes. This circle was a temple which had been devoured by ancient fires, profaned by the mosquito-infested jungle, and whose god no longer received the homage of men. The stranger stretched out beneath the pedestal. He was awakened by the sun high overhead. He was not surprised to find that his wounds had healed. He closed his pale eyes and slept, not through weakness of flesh, but through determination of will. He knew that this temple was the place required for his invincible purpose. He knew that the incessant trees had not succeeded in strangling the ruins of another propitious temple downstream, which had once belonged to gods now burned and dead. He knew that his immediate obligation was to dream. Toward midnight he was awakened by the inconsolable shriek of a bird. Tracks of bare feet, some figs, and a jug warned him that the men of the region had been spying respectfully on his sleep, soliciting his protection, or afraid of his magic. 
he felt a chill of fear and sought out a burial niche in the dilapidated wall where he concealed himself among unfamiliar leaves. The purpose that guided him was not impossible, though it was supernatural. He wanted to dream a man. He wanted to dream him in minute integrity and impose him on reality. This magic project had exhausted the entire expanse of his mind. If someone had asked him for his name or to relate some event of his former life, he would not have been able to give an answer. This uninhabited, ruined temple suited him, for it was a minimum of the visible world. The proximity of the loggers also suited him, for they took it upon themselves to provide for his frugal needs. The rice and fruit they brought him were nourishment enough for his body, which was consecrated to the sole task of sleeping and dreaming. At first his dreams were chaotic. Then, in a short while, they became dialectic in nature. The stranger dreamed that he was in the center of a circular amphitheater, which in some way was the burnt temple. Clouds of quiet students filled the tiers of seats. The faces of the farthest ones hung many centuries away and as high as the stars, but their features were entirely precise. The man lectured his pupils on anatomy, cosmography, and magic. The faces listened anxiously and tried to answer understandingly as if they guessed the importance of that examination which would redeem one of them from his condition of empty illusion and interpolate him into the real world. Asleep or awake, the man thought over the answers of his phantoms and sensed a growing intelligence in certain perplexities. He was seeking a soul worthy of participating in the universe. After nine or ten nights, he understood with a certain bitterness that he could expect nothing from those pupils who accepted his doctrine passively, but that he could expect something from those who occasionally dared to oppose him. The former group, although worthy of love and affection, could not rise to the state of individuals. The latter pre-existed to a slightly greater degree. One afternoon, now afternoons were also given over to sleep, now he was only awake for a couple of hours at daybreak, he dismissed the vast illusory class for good and kept only one pupil. He was a quiet boy, jaundiced, disobedient at times, and his sharp features resembled those of his dreamer, the sudden elimination of his fellow students did not disconcert him for long. After a few private lessons, his progress astounded the teacher. Nevertheless, catastrophe ensued. One day the man emerged from his sleep as if from a viscous desert, looked at the hollow afternoon light, which he confused with that of dawn, and understood that he had not dreamed. All that night and all day long, the intolerable lucidity of insomnia weighed on him. He tried to explore the jungle to exhaust himself, 
Amidst the hemlock, he barely managed short snatches of sleep, mottled with fleeting, rudimentary visions which were useless. He tried to reassemble the class, but barely had he articulated a few brief words of exhortation when it dissipated and disappeared. In his almost perpetual sleeplessness, his old eyes burned with tears of anger. He understood that molding the incoherent and whirling matter dreams are made of was the most difficult task that a man could undertake, even if he knew all the enigmas of the higher and the lower realms, much more difficult than weaving a rope out of sand or minting the faceless wind. He understood that an initial failure was inevitable. He swore he would forget the huge hallucination that had misled him at first, and he sought another working method. Before putting it into execution, he spent a month recovering the strength he had squandered in his delirium. He abandoned all the intent of dreaming, and almost immediately succeeded in sleeping a reasonable part of the day. The few times that he had dreams during this period, he paid no attention to them. Before resuming his task, he waited until the moon's disk was perfect. Then, in the afternoon, he purified himself in the waters of the river, worshipped the planetary gods, pronounced the lawful syllables of a mighty name, and went to sleep. Almost immediately, he dreamt of a beating heart. He dreamed it as active, warm, secret, about the size of a clenched fist, the color of garnet in the penumbra of a human body as yet without face or sex. He dreamt it with meticulous love for fourteen lucid nights. Every night he perceived it with greater clarity. He did not touch it. He limited himself to witnessing it, observing it, perhaps correcting it with his glance. He perceived it and lived it from all distances and angles. On the fourteenth night, he lightly touched the pulmonary artery with his index finger. Then the whole heart, inside and out. The examination pleased him. He deliberately did not dream for a night. Then retook the heart again invoked the name of a planet and set about to envision another of the principal organs. Within a year he had reached the skeleton and the eyelids. The hair, being innumerable, was perhaps the most difficult task. He dreamt a man in his entirety, a boy, but the boy could not stand up or talk or even open his eyes. Night after night, the man dreamt the boy asleep. In the Gnostic cosmogonies, the demigods fashion a red Adam who cannot stand. As clumsy, crude and elementary as this Adam of dust was the Adam of dreams forged by the wizard at night. One afternoon the man almost destroyed his entire work, but then changed his mind. It would have been better had he destroyed it. When he had exhausted all supplications to the deities of the land and the river, 
he threw himself at the feet of the effigy, which could have been a tiger or perhaps a colt, and implored its unascertained help. That evening at twilight, he dreamt of the statue. He dreamt it was alive, palpitating, not a mongrel of tiger and colt, but both these fiery creatures and also a bull, a rose, and a tempest. This multiple god revealed to him that his earthly name was Fire, and that in this circular temple, and in others like it, people had once made sacrifices to him and worshipped him, and that he would magically give life to the dreamed youth, and all other creatures except fire itself and the dreamer would believe him to be a man of flesh and blood. He commanded that once this man had been instructed in all the rites, he should be sent to the other ruined temple whose pyramids still survive downstream, so that some voice would glorify him in that deserted edifice. In the dreamer's dream, the dreamed one awoke. The wizard carried out these orders. He devoted a period of time, which in the end extended to two years, to instructing him in the mysteries of the universe and the fire cult. Inwardly, the idea of being separated from the child pained him. Under the pretext of pedagogical necessity, each day he increased the number of hours devoted to dreaming. He also reshaped the right shoulder, which was somewhat defective. At times, he was troubled by the impression that all this had happened before. In general, his days were happy. When he closed his eyes, he thought, Now I will be with my son. Or, more rarely, The son I have engendered is waiting for me and will not exist if I do not go to him. Gradually, he accustomed the child to reality. Once he ordered him to place a flag on a distant peak. The next day the flag was fluttering on the peak. He tried other analogous experiments, each more daring than the previous one. With some bitterness, he understood that his son was ready, and perhaps impatient, to be born. That night he kissed him for the first time and sent him off to the other temple whose remains were turning white downstream, across many miles of inextricable jungle and swamp. But before doing this, and so that his son should never know that he was a phantom, so that he should think himself a man like any other, he erased in him all memory of his years of apprenticeship. His victory and peace were clouded with tedium. At dawn and at twilight, he would prostrate himself before the stone figure, perhaps imagining his unreal son carrying out identical rites in other circular ruins downstream. At night, he no longer dreamed, or dreamed only as all men do. His perceptions of the sounds and forms of the universe became somewhat vague. His absent son was being nurtured by these diminutions of his soul. His life's purpose was fulfilled. The man lived on in a kind of ecstasy, 
After a certain time, with some chroniclers computing years and others in decades, he was awakened by two boatsmen one night. He could not see their faces, but they told him of a magic man in a temple of the north who could walk on fire and not burn. The wizard suddenly remembered the words of the god. He remembered that of all the creatures that peopled the earth, fire was the only one who knew his son to be a phantom. This recollection was soothing at first, but ended up tormenting him. He feared his son might meditate on this abnormal privilege and discover that he was a mere semblance of a man. Not to be a man, to be only the projection of another man's dreams. What humiliation! What vertigo! Any father is interested in the sons he has procreated or permitted to exist in mere confusion or pleasure. It was natural that the wizard should fear for the future of that son whom he had thought out limb by limb, feature by feature, in a thousand and one secret nights. His musings ended abruptly, but not without certain warnings. First, after a long drought, a remote cloud, as light as a bird, appeared on a hill. Then, toward the south, the sky took on the rose color of the leopard's mouth. Then clouds of smoke which corroded the metallic nights. Finally, the panic-stricken flight of wild animals. For what had happened many centuries before was happening again. The ruins of the sanctuary of the god of fire were destroyed by fire. In a birdless dawn, the wizard saw the concentric fire of the blaze licking the walls. For a moment he thought of taking refuge in the water, but then he understood that death was coming to crown his old age and absolve him from his labors. He walked towards the shards of flame. They did not bite into his flesh. They caressed him and engulfed him without heat or combustion. With relief, with humiliation, with horror, he understood that he too was mere illusion, that he was being dreamt by someone else. Thank you for listening. You passed the intelligence test with flying colors. <laughs> if you liked it, say so by pressing the like button, by subscribing and sharing with others, and even by leaving me a comment below.